Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects. I'm Ben Miller. The pandemic has put a halt to a huge number of museum exhibitions. Some of them have been delayed and others canceled, but the curatorial process continues. And Edward Town of the Yale Center for British Art has been working on a catalog that they'll be publishing this October. Uh, The book is called Marking Time, Objects, People, and Their Lives, and you can pre-order it now. The subject is a private collection of nearly 500 objects from Britain between the years 1500 and 1800. These are mostly small objects, keepsakes, and personal effects, and with a few exceptions, they are all marked with a date. That's either the year they were made or another date that's significant in some way in the life of the object. Together, they weave a story about um, daily existence, uh, what that looked like for 16th and 17th and 18th century British people, and how it changed uh, over those 300 years. The catalog features several essays, including one by my guest from this program, Glenn Adamson. So I'm pleased to be joined today by Edward Town, uh, one of the two editors of this volume, and also by Adam Ambrose. Uh, Adam is a dealer and a scholar here in New York, and several of the objects in the book uh, came through him. So Adam's research has uncovered some exciting information about these pieces, which he'll be telling us about today. And along with Ed, uh, he's one of the young people to watch in the antiques world. So I'm very excited to be having this conversation with the two of them. Adam and Ed, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. So Adam, why don't you kick this off for us and tell us um, just what exactly are the objects that we're talking about? Well, Ben, it's uh, rather generous of you to call me a scholar, uh, but thank you. Uh, I am a dealer, and I have handled four of the items that are being featured in this uh, publication. Uh, Coincidentally, they're all made of horn or white ox horn, Uh, first being two Elizabethan shoehorns by a man named Robert Mindham, who was active between 1593 and 1612. There's a third shoehorn by Mindham that's already in the collection, uh, but perhaps most exciting is, um, be, which is being published for the first time, uh, is a powder horn by Mendem, uh, the second only known to be made by him, the first being in the collection of the Museum of the City of London. And then lastly, there are three horn beakers uh, by a man named Nathaniel Spillman uh, that are quite interesting as well. Tell me about... Um uh, how you initially encountered uh, these objects, uh, and and what did you think uh, when you first came across them? I um, encountered uh, the objects in a private collection, and um, I actually uh, was there for a completely unrelated uh, reason, and uh, we were actually looking at a large collection of uh, Regency silver by Paul Storr, uh, sterling flatware, and and even silver gilt pieces, you know, sort of that sort of exude that the grandeur and that that glamour of of the Regency period and and George the Fourth, and suddenly the collector handed to me wrapped in tissue paper a small object, and I opened it, and it was um, a shoehorn, uh, which was quite jarring, uh, just because of the the contrast between the shoehorn and and the the, the silver. And uh, it, it looks like any other shoehorn. They really haven't changed all that much. There's a, a broad end with a rounded tip, and the body is curved, sort of you know, matching the, the, the curve of a person's heel. And then it tapers to an end. Um, and many of uh, Mindum's uh, shoehorns, uh, at the end, at the tapered end, they sort of curl up into a sharp tip. Subsequently, many of them have been lost, um, you know, through through use, and they've they've broken off. Um, and then uh, the another uh, thing that happens with these shoehorns is that the the, the rounded tops get abraded uh, from use. Um, but um, I was looking at this this shoehorn, which is engraved um, with designs like the Tudor rose and a crown, and there was actually an inscription running along the edge um, that read, uh, Robert Mindham made this shoeing horn for Rose Fales, uh, Anno Domini 1598. And that's when I realized I was holding an Elizabethan, you know, 400-year-old object in my hand, which was quite amazing. Um, an object that you wouldn't really expect to have survived. and um, But it, it comes from a period when more and more people are wearing shoes uh, with soft 
backs to them, and apparently they needed an instrument in order to help them in in their dressing and getting these and in, in getting these shoes on. Um, so, sort of indicative of a of a certain period in, in dress. And this is a little outside of your normal um, area of specialty, isn't it? Yeah, um, I do mostly furniture and decorative objects. Um, this horn is definitely on the early side, and it's it's um, sort of a utilitarian object, almost a piece of costume, as opposed to you know uh, you know a great table or you know a chair or something like that. Mm-hmm. This is not the Paul Store style, you know, put in the grand dining hall, you know, adorn the palaces of the. Uh, the rich and famous. Yeah, um, th- these would have been uh, made for every, you know, everyday ordinary people, and uh, the Horners uh, were actually st- a strictly regulated guild um, called the the Worshipful Company of Horners, which dates back to 1284. And Mindam actually wasn't a member, so there there have been discussions whether he, you know, was doing this professionally or or just sort of as, as amateur work. Um, yeah, his his origins may be a little unclear, but I, you know, and I, I want to get to um, Mindham himself a bit later in the conversation. Um, but I'm I'm just curious about your own experience because, you know, I'm I'm a dealer, as you know, in antique silver, and I'm often traveling to auction houses and viewing sales that have silver, but also plenty of other objects, and and sometimes things catch my eye, and sometimes I know a little bit about them, and sometimes I'm completely perplexed. I don't know anything about them. Um, when you came across this um, this shoehorn, was it something that you was it a form you were familiar with? Um, did you already have some idea of how to evaluate its quality and its rarity and its value, or or did it just strike you as an object and then you sort of did your homework afterwards? Uh, what what was your experience of it? No, I mean um, this is the first time that I've encountered or seen an Elizabethan shoehorn, and I had. Um, no idea who Robert Mindham was, but um, I was just intrigued that this this 400-year-old sort of utilitarian object uh, survived to this day, and it was so beautifully, you know, decorated, engraved, and and and, and the, the the engraving sort of inked or or or, or stained. Um, and so after encountering it, um, I did my research, and luckily because of because all of Mindham's uh, horns are inscribed, um, there's actually quite a nice little timeline into which you can slot these these shoehorns into, which gives you sort of a wonderful picture of of his work and his uh, career. Yeah, and, and then so you you acquired the piece, um, or or you had an idea of who might be interested in it. Right. So I I became aware of. Um, the publication and um, became aware of the work that Ed was doing. And that's when I thought, um, as a dated object, this would be a great thing to include. And um, and then that's where sort of the other pieces followed because there was another shoehorn in the collection. And, and then later we uncovered the beaker, uh, I'm sorry, not the beaker, the, the powder horn that's then later been sort of converted into a beaker form or sort of a drinking horn form. And and all three objects made it to the Bryan collection in time uh, to be photographed and cataloged for the, uh, for, for the publication. Yeah, so now how exactly did you connect with Ed? And Ed, maybe you can answer this from your, your perspective too. Um, you know, Adam, you're a you're a dealer, and Ed, you're a, a curator. You sort of exist in um, slightly different worlds, but they they overlap. So, for our our listeners who may not fit into either of those categories, what does that uh, relationship look like, and and how do you start the conversation about something like this uh, shoehorn? Should I take this, Adam? Sure. Um, I th- I think I'd probably start by saying a little bit about um the collection itself. Um, this is a collection really like no other um, insofar of, of its depth um, and its reach. And it was put together um, by uh, John Bryan, a businessman, philanthropist, 
and um, collector who over the course of um, a number of decades assembled a really remarkable collection of uh, fine and decorative arts. Um, and although it wasn't his initial intention when he uh, began his collection, I think quite by accident uh, during a holiday with his wife to Britain, uh, in which he um, ended the holiday um, shipping an entire shipping containers worth of brown furniture, I think it's fair to say, of sort of dubious quality back to the States. Um, but that gave him the bug. And Mr. Bryan um, sadly passed away in 2018, but had a sort of a voracious appetite um, for collecting and a very open-minded approach to what he collected. Um, and over the years, uh, one aspect of his collecting um, or something that came to the fore and that was actually only pointed out to him by an academic who came to visit his home at Crabtree Farm. Such was the prestige and the, the quality of this collection that it brought into its orbit a number of the world's leading experts on decorative arts, in this case a leading expert on silver, who made a, what it was at the time just an innocuous comment uh, to Mr. Bryan, um, viewing all of these objects, and that was, why are all of these objects dated? And Mr. Bryan had never really thought about that in the past, and up until that point, a date on an object had been um, a sort of a desirable attribute for acquisition, but it was known by, by no means, um, you know, something that had to be um, on the object. Um, but that was all to change, um, and from uh, henceforth, Mr. Bryan really began collecting with a mind towards assembling an almost encyclopedic collection of um, British decorative arts, um, with this one sort of interesting and slightly uh, quirky caveat that the object had to carry a date, it had to be dated. And this gave birth gave rise to a really, a really sort of interesting, um, a, an interesting collection. Um, but on the one hand, it was, was sort of bold in its ambition because Mr. Bryan wanted to collect an example of every type, an object of every type um, from up and down the social ladder of Britain from the early modern period. Um, but with this interesting, um, yeah, sort of proviso, that the object had to be dated. And it's sort of interesting to think about, um, particularly talking with, with you and Adam, about why dates have that, have such an appeal um, to collectors. Yeah, well, of course you have to collect something, right? If you're gonna be a collector. So mm -hmm. uh, date, dates are certainly, you know. Uh, yeah, and I think that's one of the really interesting things, yeah, really interesting aspects of, of the collection and then this book as well. Because, yeah, as you say, um, he had to collect something. I mean, in a way, Mr. Bryan collected everything, but he also collected dates. Um, and that, in turn, gave rise to this research project, um, that this, um, the research that this book showcases, because it gives us the, it's given um, myself and other people working on this uh, book project, the other authors um, of essays, uh, Glenn included, um, to consider this interesting shift that happens over the course of the 16th, 17th and 18th century, that period we loosely and vaguely describe as the early modern period, in terms of the way in which people thought about and experienced time. Because one of the central um, arguments of the book is that during this period, um, there was a phenomenon of dating objects. This is not to say that people didn't date objects before, nor that they didn't um, continue to date objects afterwards. But there's something particular and almost peculiar about this early modern period and people's compulsion uh, to date objects. And that may well be um, the, 
at the um, at the hands of the maker, such as Robert Mindham. And one of the wonderful quirks of um, the Brian collection now, um, and thanks to sort of Adam's work in bringing these objects into the Brian collection, is that we have this incredible hat trick of shoehorns um, that date from consecutive years of 1596, 1597, and 1598. Now, if we were in the 16th century, um, we would be convinced, I'm sure, that this was some kind of um, this had been preordained by God, and this was had a, of great cosmographical significance. Um, but the book is um, full of these nice little accidents, and, and we can follow. What's the, what's sort of pleasing is that we can follow um, these uh, the sort of the evolution of a, this lesser known craftsman such as Minden, who's actually only really um, come to light um, through. Uh, this publication, and for the first time, we've been able to really um, identify where Mindham was active, where he was working, um, and that was a, just a really um, happy uh, accident of of these three objects coming together at once, because it gave us a critical mass of names. As Adam mentioned, um, Mindham has this wonderfully helpful habit of inscribing not only his own name, the date, but also the name of the um, person for whom this shoehorn was made, uh, be that a man or a woman. And in one case, um, records the um, names of the person who commissioned the object and the um, person to whom it was given. So we get a, an immediate sense that these shoehorns are uh, gifts, um, between, often uh, between women. Um, and they're just the type of object and there's the type of... Um, social interaction and transaction that is um, is lost to us. And I think this is why sub objects like this are, are just so valuable and have this incredible immediacy. What Adam was describing is just that sort of moment of being bowled over upon encountering such a, on the one hand, you know, quotidian object, this everyday thing, this, this shoehorn with its wonderful plastic properties and everyday feel that went sort of went in and out of someone's uh, shoe uh, for years upon end um, but suddenly has this incredible significance um, because it was important to someone um, and important to Minden as well. Yes, Ed, I, um, I agree with you completely and I think um, you know, these, the shoehorns and the powder horns would have had um, an extraordinary effect um, in the 16th century, when they were first made, I mean, um, I don't know, I don't know if you'd agree, but I think part of the reason that we see objects being dated from this period in England, from the 16th century to the 18th century, I think in the 16th century, you start seeing the rise of the middling sort, and they finally have enough material wealth to um, buy things, you know, you know, uh, you know, comforts and luxuries beyond, you know, the, the, the standard necessities. And by the 18th century, we see the beginnings of industrialization and the sort of a full-blown capitalism that we'd recognize today. So I think um, when people are sort of owning things for the first time, there's sort of a, a, a desire to sort of mark uh, the circumstances of a family or an individual um, showing a rise in their circumstances. Oh, no, absolutely. That, that is writ large across the book um, and, you know, can be seen in the objects, um, in the Minden objects. They, they document that really nicely. I think that um, people were increasingly, well, for a start, people were, for the first time in Britain, increasingly aware of how old they were um, and have, because for the first time, um, and under government mandates, churches started um, keeping accurate records by law of the births, marriages, and deaths up and down uh, the nation. And um, much of the research that underpins um, some of the new stories, some of those stories mentioned in the title of the book, um, is derived from these records. Um, but the great thing was, is that we found Mindham, and it was only, but it was through the process of 
um, collecting. I mean, in a way, research is a, a form of collecting. You're you're collect, you're bringing things together um, in, in order to try and make sense of them. And that was certainly something that John Bryan tried to do over the course of his life and with his collection. It was collecting was a way in which he learned about the past by bringing it together. I think there's, there's no better example of this than uh, the Mindem Shoehorns, because for the first time we have an identity to this um, this craftsman. Yes, well, and th- thank you for bringing it back right back to the Shoehorns there, because um, I, I'm curious to know a little bit more about the uh, cultural context behind the object itself. Um, shoehorns, um, as, as you've said, uh, we, you know, we still have them today. They're still useful objects. Um, I don't know uh, if everyone has a shoehorn, um, but certainly some people do. Um, but uh, we're talking about pieces that were in use 400, uh, 400 years ago, or, or actually more. Um, what um, role did the shoehorn play 400 and? Thirty years ago, um, where where did it originate? Is 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 the form even old, older than that? Was it a common household item, or was it restricted to certain groups of people or um, certain cultures? Um, just no, I to, cannot, give, give I, uh, me a little context there. I cannot claim to be any any type of authority on uh, sort of shoehorns, but to my understanding, these are the earliest dated shoehorns. Um, that are known certainly from Britain, and I think Adam mentioned earlier. You know, um, the sort of the mechanics of shoe design did dictate um, that one would need an instrument by which uh, to um, divest oneself of, of the shoe and, and indeed get it on in the first place. Um, as you said, I don't know how many people still own shoe horns. Uh, they. You know, my track record with shoehorns is not great. They tend to come with a decent pair of shoes, um, but today being made of plastic uh, promptly snap after, you know, two attempts to get um, the shoe on. It's amazing that these shoehorns have survived, presumably, you know, uh, despite its sort of plastic plastic qualities, um, the horn is, is perfect insofar as that it has a degree of flexibility, but it's also robust. Um, the 1596 one uh, in, in the Bryan collection, um, which has this beautiful depiction of a um, Elizabethan woman with her um, hands on her hips, um, is more or less entirely intact um, with a sort of hole at the top, um, presumably the, the means by which it was hung um, somewhere, um, I assume, in pride of place in the household. Um, so, um, and I, I think those, the, ins, the depiction of a woman of, um, I would suggest, you know, the middling sort, she wears a, a hat and a falling ruff. Um, so someone of, um, you know, possibly sort of yeomanry class or lower gentry, um, someone who um, was, uh, in, you know, interested enough in preserving uh, their their sh- their footwear in in good condition, um, but I think the the honest truth is that even though we know where many of these people uh, lived and spent their lives, thanks to their um, appearance in the parish registers, we don't have a good sense of um, their um, what they they may have done professionally. I get the sense that these are people. There's obviously living in a uh, rural part of the country, uh, who seem to have had a degree of disposable income, um, but they're by no means um, wealthy people. These are not um, sort of uh, people who were armigerous or um, had any role necessarily in local government. Um, these were, you know, these were the middling sort. Again, to use a, a sort of. A, a, a vague term, but um, I think it's, it's precisely this group of people who um, saw the appeal of seeing not only their names, but also uh, dates on objects, this sort of interesting way to underscore the significance of a particular moment. In, in this case, it seems often to have been the exchange of a gift um, from one 
family, set of uh, families to another, from one friend or a couple of friends uh, to another, probably because these people did not have um, the ability uh, to represent themselves in the established norms of um, sort of status, that is, through uh, heraldic devices, things that you you must see um, every day of the week in on silver. I mean, that's the first thing you do, isn't it? Is you inscribe your your coat of arms on silver ahead of give, making a gift of it, because this signifies your status and that of the recipient of the gift. But these are quite quotidian. These are everyday objects, and these people didn't have those um, those those armadurous devices to uh, to serve their ends. There is, and Adam, you, you, yeah. you spoke uh, earlier about the, this idea of the rising middle class, and you also um, alluded to the the emergence of the shoehorn um, in, in parallel with uh, with leather shoes, um, because of course that's what yeah, you need so a shoehorn with, for. With these things, it's, it's sort of murky. There aren't, you know, we 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 don't have you know the first shoehorn, and and I'm sure. You know, I'm sure there there's evidence of them being used in the Middle Ages. We do know that Elizabeth I of England, uh, she bought 18 shoehorns from her shoemaker, Garrett Johnson. And then she also bought more in Isn't steel that a bit from much? her blacksmith. Sorry? Isn't 18 a bit much? Well, I mean, that, that, who knows if she was using it for her court or, or, or courtiers. But um, <laughs> so we do have, you know, we, we do, I mean, I, you know, we do, we see more, we see them becoming common or, or more common in the Renaissance. Um, and, but what I think is, is so amazing about, about the Minden pieces is that they, they, they give us a snapshot of an, of an ordinary community. And I think this is the thing that Edward has, has been, been talking about. And, and that, that's what, you know, you know, sort of makes them amazing is, is we're not talking about dukes or, or kings and queens that are, you know, that would have been the, or the church, which would have been the sort of the normal patrons of, of, of objects and, and works of art. But here we're, we're, we're starting to see ordinary people owning um, objects of quality. Um, and recognizing I'm, I'm going to ask you to. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm going to ask you to speculate here a bit because I know, you know, as you've said, we don't have a plethora of, of examples of shoehorns from the period. But the decoration on these really is extraordinary. I mean, it's. Um, uh, I, I encourage people to uh, look at the images of these um, at, at the magazine antiques.com/podcast, um, or, or, or else to buy the book and, and see the pictures um, in, in print because they're really. Um, you know, they're quite impressive as as works of design and, and craft. Um, and I wonder if this is the sort of object that um, a, a middle to upper middle class person um, might have owned. I mean, gosh, what um, what sort of shoehorns would Queen Elizabeth have been have been buying? Um, I mean, where where do you, where would you suppose that these would fit into the the sort of hierarchy of quality of of shoehorns or or um value of shoehorns in in the period well it's it's difficult to say i mean i think these sort of stand out on their own there's sort of very little to uh compare them uh with um but in some ways if you think about it horn was was very common it was everywhere it was sort of like the elizabethan plastic and you know, even you know, plastic is actually was invented to sort of imitate natural materials like horn, tortoise, or ivory. And I think um, to the crafts, you know, to the craftsman, it sort of would have inherently sort of you know that that curved conical shape would have inherently lent itself to a tool like that. And that's what it is. It's basically a horn that's been split in half. And then it's heated, which um, sort of takes advantage of this natural thermoplastic um, quality of, of horn, molded to the shape, and then finally cut out into the final shape, filed, refined, and then engraved. And um, the engraving is actually um, sort of a, a fairly easy form of, of decoration. It wouldn't uh, have required as much training as, let's say, you know, uh, carving or something, which very easily would have, you know, which would which you'd need more training for. Um, and then he sort of repeats these, these graphic uh, motifs of, you know, the Tudor rose, um, crowns, um, a fleur-de-lis, um, 
scales, cross-hatching, and, and uh, trees. So in, in some ways, the, you know, the, 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 the material and the technology would have been fairly simple and, and commonplace. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I still think these, um, these objects are r- remarkable um, survivors of their age and, and quite special. It starts to sound uh, a little, and this is anachronistic, but it starts to sound a little like what we would call folk art. Yeah, absolutely. I think I don't know. I I, lo- I love your question, and I you know what what fun to speculate as to what what Elizabeth um, used to um, put on her shoes, or you know um, the, the the lady in waiting who um, had that um, absolutely thankless task. And fun to speculate as well as to whether or not um, these objects ever left uh, the vicinity. As it happens, the earliest dated um, shoehorn by Minden um, of 1593 is now in the Museum of London. Um, We know, thanks to the inscription, um, was made for someone described by Minden as Hamlet Rasdale or Rochdale, um, who... um, Mindham proudly described on the shoehorn as the Cooper of London, and London spelled um, sort of curiously with um, an A at the end. So clearly, um, Mindham was not familiar with uh, London as a place, um, perhaps understandable given that he was in uh, quite a quiet backwater of East Anglia. Um, but um, interesting to think about this, uh, this, this Londoner who comes up for whatever reason um, to, uh, towards the um, East Anglian coast um, via, by way of Cambridge. Um, as a cooper, he may well have um, been in the business of procuring horns for his own business. And chances upon um, this remarkable horner um, called Robert Mindham um, who produces these most this most beautiful um, work, these most beautiful works of art as you describe um, yeah as if like um, what we would describe today as folk art sort of something uh, a a uh, a sort of a tradition that was existing in relative isolation from uh, the metropolis etc so. You know, whereas there are some um, motifs that are familiar to us uh, that appear on the horns. There's a, a stylized Tudor rose and something that looks a little bit like a, um, a bishop's mitre um, a, across a band of decoration. One feels this is very much um, of Minden's decoration. And unlike other engravers, he wasn't slavishly looking uh, to continental print sources for his inspiration. Um, this was this was his decoration. This was his work. Um, and remarkably, he was proud of it as well. Um, you know, we're dealing of a period um, where it was rare even for court painters to claim authorship of their work. Um, but here we have a quirky Horner in, um, yeah, it, it sort of, yeah, well outside of um, the city, who is proudly um, inscribing his name um, and giving it as equal um, importance to those of his um, of his his uh, his patrons. One wonders what they made of it and whether or not they cared a great deal whether um, they owned a Minden shoehorn. Well, um, what I think is is interesting and sort of plays into that is that Mindham continues to use the Tudor rose motif long after the death of Elizabeth and the Stuarts are on the throne, um, and you know this is purely speculative. But it, you, you know you you wonder if that you know is is a hint of his politics or, or of his loyalties, um, and also just shows what a, what a powerful symbol the Tudor rose was. I mean, it's fairly new. It came from Elizabeth's grandfather Henry the Seventh, and then. You know, we then we see this man continuing to use it, and um, you know, you can speculate. Is you know, it just sh- sort of shows how removed from London he is, possibly. But um, th- you know, it, it's it, it's sort of a glimpse into the 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 un- the, the common man's understanding of the world, um, which is quite interesting. 
back with Adam Ambrose and Edward Town in just a moment. If you're interested in seeing pictures of the beakers uh, and the shoehorns, which I really recommend, they're they're visually striking objects. Um, you can see those at the magazineantiques.com/podcast or on my Instagram at Objective Interest. Um, thank you so much to those of you who are supporting the podcast by subscribing or leaving a rating or writing a review or telling someone else about it. Uh, if you enjoy the show, these are all great ways to help us reach new listeners. As you know, Curious Objects is brought to you by the magazine Antiques, the publication of record in the world of fine and decorative arts for almost 100 years. Check out themagazineantiques.com, where new and archival stories are uploaded daily, as well as the magazine's social media channels, where you'll find the Antique of the Day, selected by editor-at-large Glenn Adamson. If you like what you see, then subscribe and get the upcoming November-December issue of the Magazine Antiques in your mailbox. There's one other uh, Robert Mindham piece in the collection that uh, we wanted to talk about, um, which is not a shoehorn, but um, it's also made out of horn. In this case, it's a powder horn. Um, so, uh, Adam, tell me about this uh, this powder horn, which actually, um, to look at it, uh, you wouldn't necessarily recognize it as, as a powder horn. Right. Immediately looking at it, it, it looks like a beaker. Um, and you can look at, if you imagine the, the horn, you can sort of see approximately where, you know, that the, the piece came from. But it, it doesn't look like the full horn that you'd see, you know, draped, you know, across someone's someone's body that comes to a point. Um, at some point, we, we do have one example of a powder horn made by Mindem. It's in the Museum of the City of London. And there we see the full, you know, the full form. Um, I suspect that this was the horn was damaged. And at some point it had silver mounts put on it. Um, to sort of transform it um, again, because we 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 sort of have a, a different relationship to to objects today than we did, you know, so many years ago, where nothing was disposable, right? You know, you know, the use of horn, you know, is is not only because it's it's a wonderful material to work with, because it's easy, you know, to to mold and, and create things, and it's it's watertight. But because it would have been plentiful, you know, you know, when 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 uh, you know when you when you have beef, you know, you use every part of the animal, and this this would have come naturally from that. But, anyways, it was it was it just shows that these these objects had always been cared for, and that someone, you know, you know, had this object, and unfortunately it was damaged. But they 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 went through the effort of having it fixed. And instead of using, you know, you know, common, you know, metal, they they had it uh, fixed uh, with with silver. Um, so it just shows you how valued this this object was. And then and then it continued life in in some sort of beaker form, which we don't really, you know, we don't have sort of a firm evidence. But it but it we do have um, the original inscription, which is dedicated to a Thomas Draper, and it's dated sixteen. 16- 12, I believe. It, it retains some remarkable decoration um, of, of the Tudor Rose and uh, birds and fleur-de-lis and these sort of these, these, these scrolls and, and, and vegetation, which is really amazing. But this is the first time that it's, it, it's ever been published. So to my knowledge, it, it really hasn't been known uh, ever since you know, we, we started seeing articles on Minden by like, Joan Evans in Burlington Magazine 1944. So, you know, you know, we'll have to, to, you know, it just shows how much there, there is to learn about Mindem and his work still, even, even still. Yeah, it was clearly a much right, loved and, and, and cherished object. I think that's that's the nice thing about it. My favorite thing about this horn is the fact that um, in its recalibrated state, as a vessel, as a drinking vessel, as opposed to something uh, to hold. Um, powder it won't stand up on its own so one has to fill it with liquid um, in order to keep it steady on a table uh, which presumably encouraged the um, the sort of the person lucky enough to be drinking from it uh, to to finish to down the contents of 
the cup and then um, demand a refill, else the cup yes. is going to spill. That's very funny. It's almost like a uh, stirrup cup. Um, exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, um, yeah. It was that was always going to be a danger, wasn't it? You know, with the shape. Um, so it's, it is. It is inherently uh, top heavy. Um, yeah. One of the nice things about it as well is it's a it's a late piece by Robert Mindham. Sort of going through um, the uh, twenty six shoehorns and, and two powder horns. So this is one of only two powder horns. Um, known, um, surely there are more out there uh, waiting to be discovered. But this is, um, I think, three years um, prior to his death. I think we're now confident that he was the Robert Mendham. Well, you, you're both um, sketching quite a, an interesting portrait of this fellow Robert Mendham. Uh, but there's another name that uh, we wanted to bring into the mix, and that is Spillman. Um, a name which is associated with uh, a couple of other pieces made in horn um, from the, the collection. So, um, Adam, tell us about your encounter um, with the Spillman uh, beaker in question. And um, was it sort of like the shoehorn uh, in, in, in coming out of nowhere and sort of surprised to you? Or uh, how, how did you come across it? Well, these uh, were originally made and intended to be beakers, so they're a little bit different. Um, they have much straighter sides. Um, they're engraved as well. Um, the, the example I handled um, is just horn. The the uh, other two have sing, uh, silver collars or, or rings or mounts. Um, so now we're in the late 18th century, so we are moving away from those 16th century motifs you know, that relate to the Tudor family. And here um, we are already seeing you know, figural uh, representation. We have a farmer sort of plowing, and, and we see uh, harbors and birds, and um, we see neoclassical motifs and neoclassical buildings, but they're still a bit naive, and they sort of have this sort of uh, stilted, forced perspective um, but Ed, uh, would you rather uh, talk about the the beakers as a group? As um, two of them were already in the collection, and and you might be able to uh, you know, tell a better story about the the, the entire group. Okay, do sure thing. I, I I can give that yeah give that a go. Um, so there are um, three Spillman cups in the collection. Um, and it was working with Adam on the possibility of bringing the Minden pieces, um, in, including those in the publication, um, that brought to light um, the third of these three cups. And um, your uh, listeners will um, be able to see online that they are uh, a complete joy because they are a riot of... Um, engravings, um, uh, the, the sort of uh, totally eccentric, and actually the three cups are quite uh, different, even though they take the same in terms of the decoration. Um, they have uh, an identical horn form. Um, two of the three are um, uh, bare silver mounts. Uh, the third seems to have lost um, those mounts. Um, but all are, have this most wonderful decoration. The two objects that are dated um, bear dates of 1788 and an inscription that reads, um, a view of Powderham Castle in the county of Devonshire, and then the names of John and Mary Anne Page of Ludham, Norfolk, June 7th, uh, 1788. So it's unclear to us, at least at this distance, as to the significance of Powderham Castle uh, to either um, the married couple, uh, John and John and Mary, um, who were at that point um, coming up, um, they were just shy of their 20-year wedding anniversary. Um, perhaps they had visited Powderham Castle. Um, but I think it's equally uh, possible that Nathaniel Spillman, um, who was an engraver in his own right, um, had access to Samuel and Nathaniel Buck's engravings of um, Powderham Castle and just used this as a uh, whimsical and um, sort of uh, 
pleasant um, decoration for his cup uh, made for this married couple. Um, the other, the undated cup, which is uh, just entirely riotous, um, depicts a, uh, a sort of a chest of drawers out of which springs um, a plethora of um, musical instruments um, above which um, are a number of uh, small uh, but immediately recognizable Masonic symbols. And above that, it's, uh, again, is a sort of a banderole that reads in capital letters, success to the sons of harmony. Um, and it could sound a little bit like a, uh, a heavy metal band, but were in fact a small group of uh, Norwich-based um, musicians who belonged uh, to a, um, a Masonic lodge uh, based there. And we know from various um, newspapers of the period uh, that they performed uh, up and down Norwich as part of an annual feast in 1791. So in a way, this object can be dated because it can be tethered um, to the history of this of this group. I think what's nice for me, at least, is just is digging out these sort of uh, these odd stories, these lesser known characters. I think often um, the grand narratives of American and British history, particularly seen through uh, the decorative arts, can tend to flatten history in a way that writes uh, people like Spillman and, um, you know, the owners of these cups out of history. Yeah, well, it's, it's quite an interesting set of stories. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, we've uh, crossed about two centuries between the shoehorns and, and these beakers. Um, and yet they're both uh, made in, with the same materials. Are they also made uh, using some comparable methods. Um, I mean, what do you think the the uh, crafting process w was like for these objects uh, relative to each other? But, but yes, I mean, I, Adam, think, I, I, I think that... Go, go on, Adam, sorry. Did, did you want to say something? All I was going to say is that, you you know, you'd really eloquently describe the way in which the shoehorns have been made. I assumed that the cups... Are actually a little more straightforward because they are just a, a horn um, that is uh, sort of truncated at its um, at either end and then uh, given a, a wooden uh, base and then these silver mounts to sort of bring it all together. Um, but I think what's what's nice and but certainly interesting for me is that they are uh, both products of the same part of the country um, and do show this uh, wonderful continuity in craftsmanship over the centuries. Um, and that same compulsion um, to inscribe and to decorate and for our purposes, importantly, to date as well, um, the objects and often to, and to record the names of the people um, who, um, who owned them and who commissioned them. Um, and the, that gives them this wonderful immediacy and, and humanity, uh, which is such an important aspect of the Bryan collection. Yeah, so we've really um, taken quite a, a journey here. Um, I think we've we've covered quite a bit of ground, um, and uh, you know, I just want to take a moment and and leap ahead to the present. Um, you know, these objects are going into this uh, book, which. Um, as as you're listening to this, um, will be available very shortly, uh, if, if not already. Um, and the the pieces are in a private collection, but um, clearly, you know, have have now attracted the attention of the two of you, and um, and presumably will attract the attention of others um, from a scholarly perspective, from a, a connoisseurial, but um, also just a. a the perspective of people interested in history and storytelling. Um, where do they go next? What what happens next, and what um, what do you think the future uh, holds for these pieces? 
Well, there is um, a history of, of collecting the, the shoehorns. Um, there are articles from the Society of Antiquaries from the late 19th century, and uh, Percival Griffiths, the great uh, collector of English furniture, was known to have at least one, maybe two, shoehorns by Mindham. And so, you know, that's why I, I think it's a fascinating thing about collecting is in, in, in bringing these objects together, we, 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 we sort of understand them better and uh, with, you know, in, in context with each other. And by publishing them, um, you know, it, it, it puts the information out there and, and sort of um, encourages others uh, to become interested. And perhaps more objects uh, by Mindem will, will come to be known. And hopefully they'll, they'll come with more information that will sort of put the whole sort of group um, into sort of a greater context and understanding. Ed, Ed what do you think? Um, do, do you have plans or intentions uh, beyond the, the current publication? Um, as, oh gosh. Um, I think my, my main ambition um, for the book now and moving forward uh, is that it is enjoyed by people. That was always a, a goal of, of Mr. Bryan and much of that was the spirit of in which he collected these objects as was for they so that they could be studied, better understood, but most importantly enjoyed. There is that so many of the objects um, have I know it's a dangerous word to use, but they have charm um, and a tremendous uh, humanity to them. And there is so much within this book um, in terms of uh, the variety, everything from, you know, pots, um, you know, teapots to tape measures, barber bowls, um, porringers, it, you, you name it, it's in the book. So I really hope that there's something here uh, for everyone and that it will inspire not only um, further research and improved knowledge of uh, the makers and uh, the people who own these objects, um, but will also inspire a new generation of collectors as well. Because I think something that comes out of um, working with Adam is that um, often with objects of this type, it's so important to, there is great value in bringing things together, um, either in a collection or in, a, in, in this case, both in a collection and a publication. Um, new things come to light, new patterns emerge, um, and we get further insights into the past. Well, I think those are excellent aspirations and I, I, wish, you, uh, I wish you well with the publication. Um, and, and thank you both so much for uh, bringing these objects to our attention and, and sharing their, their stories with us. Um, I, I really appreciate your time and, and your expertise. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Next episode, I'll be speaking with a specialist at Christie's and a very special consigner about some French decorative arts pieces in an upcoming sale of theirs, so stay tuned for that. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm your host, Ben Miller. Mm-hmm.